Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. We've heard a lot about supply chain disruptions these past few months, but here's something new to think about. In 2021, the Port of Vancouver moved a record amount of cargo, 147 million tons. If you're wondering what this means, one way to think about the port is like a main line for Canada, bringing consumer goods and merchandise into the country from some of the manufacturing powerhouse countries in Asia. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I delved into the port of Vancouver. It's not something most of us think about like pretty much ever, but there's a decent chance that you could be wearing a pair of headphones or you may have spent hours staring at a flat screen that came into the country through that port. And here's the nub of this episode. There's a new report by the World Bank and S&P Global Market Intelligence, which ranks the Port of Vancouver next to last in terms of its performance and operational efficiency. In 2021, it ranked 368th out of 370 ports around the world. So how is it, I wondered, that the port could move records amount of cargo in 2021 and also rank so poorly? This is a story that touches inflation, consumerism, climate change, trade, so many issues, and I have several guests to explain it all. As always, the interviews are edited for clarity and brevity. So I wanted to start with an old storyline from the pandemic. Once people got locked down and spent more time in their houses, they stopped spending on entertainment and services, and they started spending on goods. Avery Schenfeld, chief economist of CIBC, explains. When people were shying away from consuming services, they bought you know, exercise bikes instead of going to the gym. They bought home entertainment system instead of going to the movies. So we put a lot of pressure on the supply chain to deliver all those goods. And one piece of that was that we overcrowded ports. There were port shutdowns due to COVID. And once you get behind, it's very hard to catch up. Inventories get lean, and it's hard to produce enough goods to both sell and restock the shelves. So manufacturing shuts down in Asia because of COVID. When the factories resume operations, the virus arrives in North America and shuts down large swaths of the economy, including ports. My first question was what effect this had on inflation, which clocked in at 6.7% in April, the highest it's been in decades. At the height of the orgy of good spending and the, the lull in inventories, the bare shelves, you know, those port lineups were a big, bigger part of the story. Port congestion may have started inflation, but it's also true that inflation has now spread beyond just products to many other parts of the economy. The story on inflation has clearly broadened out to wages, to service prices, to really you know, an across-the-board issue. Inflation is being driven by strong economic demands, the strength of the recovery, not just in Canada, but globally, putting pressure on goods prices, as well as the problems we're having now in the food side and the oil side, which are partly tied to the war in Ukraine, adding to our misery on the inflation front. So ports are interesting creatures. The Vancouver Fraser Port Authority manages the port. It's a federal agency, but it's not financed by tax dollars. 
It makes money by renting space to terminals, through tenant leases, and through other fees. And Nathan Strang, who works for the consultancy Flexport, studies port and advises companies on the relative performance of each port. And this is how he explained the business of ports to me. How do ports make most of the money? So the terminal makes the money. The terminal's client is the ocean carrier. They have an agreement with them for how much it's going to cost to unload their ships, to load their ships, to do things like provide shore power and all the other amenities, right? They have these standing tariffs. The terminals then pay rent essentially to the port, and that's how the port makes money in the most simplistic way possible. There's other tariffs and fees and all kinds of other things tacked on there, but generally that's how they do it. So it's volume. So just to summarize, basically ports rent space to terminals. Terminals have agreements with ocean carriers and they charge a fee to move every container, but it's notoriously difficult to evaluate port performance because they're located in different countries. They use different metrics. They're all subject to different regulations. This new report from the World Bank and S&P Global is so interesting because it tried to create a single metric that could apply to all the ports around the world and would come up with a way to measure their comparative performance. And it looked at things like port layout, the infrastructure, and critically, the amount of time that container vessels spend at a port. We're looking primarily at vessel time because that's a significant indication of the relevant facial operating efficiency of the container side of the port. That's Martin Humphreys, the lead transport economist for the World Bank, explaining that the report is concerned with the time that vessels spend at a port. You're coming up with a method that has a hard evidential base of providing a robust indication of comparative performance by throughput, by region. This hasn't been done before. Um, And in some cases, you know, the ports have been quite happy with that. So the veil has been stripped away. And so from our side, You know, I wouldn't say that the results were entirely unexpected. Maybe the ranking of some ports is something of a surprise. With others, it's not as much of a surprise. But it's less the findings, really, than than what comes next. You know, how, how can a port or country improve its relative performance rather than its ranking? And I draw a marked distinction between those two to reduce the cost of international trade uh, imports and exports in in, in the country, particularly in the countries in in which we work. He wouldn't criticize the Port of Vancouver directly. I mean, he still stood by the ranking it received in his report, but he declined to go into specific criticism. What Humphreys explained to me, though, is that every container ship is essentially on a loop. For example, between Vancouver and Asia, the more time it spends in a port, the less trips it makes per year, which translates into higher costs per container and ultimately could raise the costs for the goods that are being carried on that ship. Let's say you have a large container ship that goes between China and and the West Coast of America. Now, out of that, you know, if it's 15% of its time that it's spent in port, if you increase the amount of time that it's waiting outside the port or in port, so the total goes up to 30, 35%, 40%, then the number of trips that vessel will make every year is markedly reduced. And so the cost of every container will go up markedly. And you see that in the spot rates for container prices between the countries. Up until now, I told you that this report ranked the port of Vancouver near last. But in fact, almost every West Coast port in North America ranked poorly. Los Angeles and Long Beach were actually dead last at 370th and 369th. Prince Rupert, which is also in BC, ranked 344th out of 378. Seattle, Tacoma, 336, and so on and so forth. And in contrast, the East Coast ports just killed it. Halifax got ranked 46th, Norfolk, Virginia, 23rd, 
And so I'm going to do a bit of a 180 because when I inquired why Vancouver and other West Coast ports ranked so poorly, I heard that there were some good reasons. Here's Strang, the port consultant, describing what happens when you get congestion. Look at where the terminals are and like how big they are in Vancouver, right? One of them's like pretty much right in downtown. So there's not a lot of space. So like they can get congested really quickly. They're basically banking on fluidity. They're banking on that the containers come off the ship, get under rail, and get out of there. And when that doesn't happen, it backs up fast. And they're really still recovering from the December mudslides and, and the fall mudslides. Like that really set back those ports. And that, coupled with some construction projects that were going on there and some just market dynamics, again, being closest to Asia, that really drives you know the congestion at those ports. And they've been hurting for it, for sure. I started off thinking this was a pandemic issue, but then people started talking about the wildfires in the summer of 2021, which took out a lot of roads and rail lines and made it harder to move containers out of the port. And then a few months after that, there was flooding and wildfires, which did it again. Think about it this way. If you have a cup that can hold 12 ounces of liquid and you pour 13 ounces in, it's going to spill over. So until you can reduce the volume in that cup, okay, so I know, okay, I got it down to 10 ounces, but I come in with another four ounce pour, it's going to spill over again. So once you hit a limit on a port, it now compounds. And what you need and what we never had in 2021, and, you, and this is, would be normal in a shipping season, is a lull period. You need a period where the cargo volumes go down and there you, before you can evacuate empties, you can clear the loads that are still on the dock and you can recover. When that doesn't happen, it just keeps compounding and compounding and compounding. So any little disruption that pushes it over the top is a huge disruption. Like any little thing becomes a huge issue. So if a port is already running at 95, 98% capacity, suddenly 110% capacity comes in, or even if it gets close to 100, any sneeze is going to shut the port down and it's going to cause those kinds of issues. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The irony, of course, is that there's been no lull because the economic recovery has been doing so well. And not only that, Strang explained to me that once our West Coast ports started getting congested, rather than experiencing a lull, they experienced an acceleration because it happens that our West Coast ports are located so close to Asia that they're primed to get most of that cargo and delays need to get really bad, like weeks long, before shippers decide they're going to go to the East Coast, which involves a trip through the Panama Canal, which can only handle so many ships at any one time and usually involves its own delay and wait times of anywhere from a few days to much longer. And then after that, they have to travel all the way up around the East Coast. Most of the cargo coming is going to come into the West Coast. So already the services were aligned in that direction. One of the reasons is speed. It's just a shorter transit. Even if you come into the West Coast and you're going all the way to New York, say by truck or rail, it's still faster than going through the Panama Canal and, and up the East Coast or even through the Suez. The other thing that contributes, I think, to congestion on the West Coast is the West Coast, you have these mega port complexes. So you have LA Long Beach, you have Seattle Tacoma, you have Vancouver, 
these are big ports that have a lot of terminals and take in a lot of cargo into a relatively small area, right? So, you know, big bucket pouring into a small pipe. On the East Coast, you have a lot of small ports. So you have Miami and Jacksonville, Charleston, Savannah, Norfolk, and you go up, up the coast like that. So if you're a West Coast port and you don't have a whole lot of slack in your system and the industry needs more cargo and needs to bring in more cargo faster, they're going to want to bring it to the West Coast. So you're going to get hit first and harder than the East Coast. On the East Coast, those little bits of slack are more distributed and you can kind of you know, spread that out a lot more because a service coming to the West Coast is just going to call LA usually, or maybe it calls LA and Oakland. But the East Coast, that same ship is going to call Charleston, Savannah, Norfolk, New York, Boston, Baltimore. It's going to call all the ports. So it can spread the cargo out a lot more. So the congestion becomes a lot more pronounced on the West Coast. And it just also becomes more pronounced more quickly, again, due to the transit time and just people wanting to get the cargo faster. And and kind of the last thing before I wrap up on this, this rant is that the more congestion there was and the more desire there was right to like get the cargo quicker the more likely those ships were going to go to the west coast because of that shorter transit time so even if you're waiting 15 days to get into los angeles or 18 days to get it to waiting to get into oakland it would still be 20 days to go to savannah just the longer transit through the panama canal and up so you're talking even with a 15 or so date wait on day wait on the on a west coast port it's still at the end of the day, faster to come to the West Coast than go to the East Coast. And so from the perspective of West Coast ports, there was a pandemic, there was a system that seemed to set up the congestion they had. And the coup de grace is that there were these extreme weather events that got layered on top of all this. Here's Peter Exada, Vice President of Operations and Supply Chain at the Vancouver Fraser Port Authority. In British Columbia, there were wildfires and floods, atmospheric river, new, new term that we all learned that really had a, call it a, a near catastrophic impact on the supply chain. Quite remarkable, the nature of the impacts from that particular event. To jog everyone's memory, in 2021, there were punishing heat waves in British Columbia. The village of Lytton burned to the ground after the temperature there hit 49.6 degrees Celsius. That was the all-time hottest record in Canada. And then there was an atmospheric river. That was a term I had never heard of before. Basically, it's a band of moist, warm air. It can be hundreds of kilometers long, hundreds of kilometers wide, and it dumped rain onto parts of BC for more than 24 hours straight. And so you had flooding and mudslides, and it just took out a lot of rail infrastructure. So it wasn't just the supply of goods and ships waiting to get into the port. It was that goods couldn't leave the port because heat waves, fires, flooding were disrupting critical infrastructure like rail lines and road that would have carried that stuff out. Oh, my God. I don't know if you saw some of the pictures of the nature of the disruption that we had both to road and uh, rail in the western part of the country. In, in, in British Columbia, the, the supply chain was severed for, for several days. And so, you know, add that to the volatility and issues that are being dealt with in uh, other parts of the supply chain. It was clearly an unprecedented impact and an unprecedented challenge for us to, to work through. And it's really important to note that an international team of scientists assessed the heat wave in BC that occurred in June of 2021, and they concluded it would have been virtually impossible without human-caused climate change. From our perspective, 
the events were unprecedented, so I think they validate concerns about uh, extreme weather events uh, impacting our underlying infrastructure and, and the Canadian economy. What we've been focused on is, well, what can we do to uh, participate or lead initiatives to build resiliency in, in, into the supply chain? So on a local level, that means working with municipalities and the regional government on flood protection. In terms of building new facilities, it means making sure that they're designed such that they can respond and operate successfully in, in, in a situation where we have sea level rise. But more importantly, what we're doing is, uh, or equally importantly, what we're doing is investing in new facilities to, to, to build the capacity for Canada's trade to continue to grow. One of the things that I think is important context, Canada has a disproportionate amount of its trade done through very few gateways. Uh, Vancouver being the most significant one uh, in that context in terms of overall scale. That that creates a challenge, but it also creates an opportunity. And it creates an opportunity in terms of focus of senior government and focus of resource to help build that resiliency. And that's something we've been championing for a long time. And I'm pleased to say over the last decade, we've seen well over $3 billion worth of terminal investments. Re- you know, redevelopment and expansions occur within the port. Uh, those were approved by the Port Authority. But the Port of Vancouver is running into its own space problems. There's a lot of sensitive habitat off the coast of BC. And so there are already arguments about how many ships you can push through that area. Plus, you have people living right around there. It's some of the most expensive real estate in the country. So where do we go from here? I asked the consultant Strang, and he said it's possible that some shippers, instead of using West Coast ports, may divert ships and start moving them through East Coast ports, which, by the way, would be happy to finally get some of that business. And it's becoming harder and harder to establish infrastructure now, right? When you look at when the U.S. West was populated and in the Canadian Pacific Northwest, you know, the logging industry founded most of those ports. A lot of that stuff is really hard to do now. So if you want a new port, that's a multi-decade process. So really, you're stuck with the ports you have. So on the West Coast, we have like the Port of Wainimi up in Ventura County in California. We have Portland, Oregon, Vancouver, Washington are ports that could be utilized, but they're going to require investment. But I think that it's it's been shown on the East Coast and elsewhere, like if you build it, they will come. Like if you build the port out, services will call there because the faster a ship can turn around and get back to Asia and load more cargo, the more money it makes. A ship doesn't make money idle. It needs to turn around those boxes as quick as possible to continue to make that service profitable because at the end of the day, they're all business. You know, They're all trying to make their profit. So and that's something that we talk about when we when we meet with our carriers is they're not like trying to force cargo into any specific ports. They're going to carry cargo wherever the demand is. And they're generally excited when they see these, you know, these East Coast opportunities and, and things like Halifax expanding. They get excited to see that because that gives them more opportunities to get cargo closer to the clients um, and turn their ships faster. I asked Shenfeld, the chief economist at CIBC, what we can take away from this entire episode. One lesson from this for, for businesses is that it might pay to stockpile a little more inventories. We've been running the economy in previous decades with very lean inventories on the grounds that you don't have to finance them, you don't have to have the space to store them. And businesses are rethinking that very lean inventory strategy because when the ship doesn't arrive in the port or the package doesn't arrive from the manufacturer, your sales are disrupted right away. Everything was just in time. And unfortunately, when things don't arrive just in time, you see an immediate impact on your business that you wouldn't have felt if you'd been keeping up a warehouse of either parts and materials or finished product. So perhaps just-in-time movement will be adjusted 
someone else might look at the same episode and say, we've reached peak consumerism. We're literally having problems getting more stuff into the country, the continent, really. And I've been focusing on imports to Canada, but there's also a lot of exports that leave the country through the port of Vancouver. Things like coal, but also potash, which is a type of fertilizer, and all sorts of agricultural grains. So this is a big picture issue for our economy. Another takeaway is that when economists say we're entering a period of higher volatility, they're talking about this, the pandemic, climate change. There's going to be a cascade of consequences. And most of us never visit the port, never think about it, but it's intimately connected to things on our desks or our work surface. And so hopefully this puts a concrete example to mind about how that volatility works. Okay, that's it for the show this week. Thanks so much for supporting and listening to Down to Business. And a huge thank you to the guests. Avery Schenfeld is the chief economist for CIBC based in Toronto. Martin Humphreys is the lead transport economist for the World Bank based in Washington, D.C. Nathan Strang is the director of ocean trade lane management for the consultancy Flexport, and he's based in Long Beach, California. Peter Exada is vice president of operations and supply chain at the Vancouver Fraser Port Authority in Vancouver. This show was executive produced by Bryce Hall, who composed and performed the original music. Pamela Heaven, Victoria Wells, and Noella Ovid provided web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week. But until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.